0: available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And
1: now, here's your host, L Russ.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Paul Grieve from the company Primal Pastures, primalpastures.com. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: Uh, you know, I discovered your website actually like a little bit over a year ago, and I've been curious about you guys. And then I just kind of revisited as your company has been growing. And I was like, I really want to talk to these 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 guys or, or one of you. I know that is sort of a, a family or a friend endeavor. Tell us, how did you get into being a farmer? What were you doing before you decided to get into this arena of primal
1: pastures? So. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the condensed version. We're accidental farmers. We're first generation farmers. We had no intention. We were actually like normal people at one point in our lives. So I was a I was a military officer. Um, started getting some arthritis issues and some inflammation issues And in 2007. Paleo and CrossFit and all these things were getting popular. So had some buddies recommend it, and I just tried it for a couple of weeks, thinking it wasn't going to do any good. And sure enough, you know, like many of you listeners out there, probably had this crazy experience and felt like a kid again, and I could breathe through my nose, and like all oh, the pain was gone so I started taking a deep dive on the food system and just trying to learn what the heck was going on and I learned a lot and uh started trying to feed my family healthy meats so you know I was spending a lot of extra money on the grass fed and the free range and cage free and all these different things so look into it a little bit deeper and uh now i 'm working after the military as a CPA and like, you know, desk jockey and all this stuff. Uh, and you, you kind of learn what these labels really mean. And it was kind of disheartening that we're spending a lot of extra money on junk, basically, that's marketed really well. And so we just like sitting around April 2012 at my in-laws who had about two acres out in Temecula, Southern California. And I said, man, wouldn't that be funny to get like some chickens and just raise them for ourselves? Haha, big joke, right? So.
0: (laughs) sounds uh, awesome to me.
1: My brother-in-law like takes it a little more seriously apparently because he goes, disappears from the room and comes back like 10 minutes later and he goes, hey, so I just ordered those 50 chicks you guys were talking about. They'll be here in two weeks.
0: Oh my God. And you're like, wait, no. (laughs) We're
1: like, are you kidding me right now? Like we've never farmed, never raised even a dog, you know, like never done any animal stuff at all. I grew up in downtown Seattle, never planned to be involved in farming or agriculture or anything of the sort. So we just like put them outside on pasture. We raised them on the feed that we thought was appropriate. And they ate grass and seeds and bugs and worms in a really high quality supplemental feed. And we thought we have a big family. So we we're like, all right, 50 birds. That should be like one a week for a year. And that'll be great. And I've always been an entrepreneur. So I put a couple of things up on Facebook just saying like, If there's anybody out there that wants to try one of these chickens, let me know. We'll save one for you. And uh, literally all 50 of them sold out within two weeks. My family was like really upset. They're like,
0: we're starving now. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, they were all
1: mad at me. Um, So the next month we did 100 and then the same thing happened. We had like this crazy waiting list of 100-something families. And then a couple months later we did 200, then 400, then 1,000. And then about a year later – I was absolutely miserable as a desk jockey CPA, and I was like, wow, I think this little business might be growing. So I quit my job, left the beach, moved for the country, and my wife and I and the rest of our family just started, we just started doing farming full-time, and it's been like crazy since then.
0: And it's so beautiful in Temecula and the surrounding areas there. It's so amazing. Mm Some really great food around there, too. So you have more than just chickens, though, right?
1: Yeah. So since then, you know, we had people start asking us, Hey, where should we get good lamb? Where should we get good beef, pork? And so we've added those items onto the farm for a whole host of other reasons, but also just because we want to be able to sell the other meats too. So we do pasture raised, uh, you know, beyond organic, GMO and soy free chicken, lamb, beef, pork, raw honey, and wild seafood.
0: Wow. And I know you supply some of the best restaurants and butcher shops in Southern California and also LA Dodgers and the LA Lakers team meals. So there's a lot going on. I know for residents of California and Arizona and Nevada, you, you ship and maybe hopefully will expand at that point. When you had been sort of jacked up before you got the health under the control and, you know, could breathe again and, and, and got rid of some inflammation, Do you sense that if you, I doubt you ever eat non-grass fed, but if you're out somewhere, is it, was it really the quality of the meat that was affecting you? Was it that plus a lot of other things as well? Like what were some of the triggers for you that when you eliminated, you realized that those things were affecting you negatively?
1: So I've found that meat quality is more of a long-term issue than like a, for me, I'll have pizza or I'll have a piece of bread and I can feel it the next morning, you know? for beef, like if I go out to a restaurant and had a feedlot beef or something, I don't necessarily notice that the next day. But by ingesting all those antibiotics, the hormones, the GMOs, the soy, all the different things that are going into that, I think it's much more of like a long-term health detriment than it is the next morning kind of thing, like eating gluten for somebody who's intolerant.
0: Right. And you know, I would love you to kind of, it's it's so confusing. There's people, you know, who go out there and they they want to try to eat clean and they see that something says grass-fed beef and so they think they're getting 100 percent pastured grass-fed beef but they're not so can you kind of go through some of the misconceptions on some of these labels with meat so that people get a clear understanding of you know what they're purchasing and, and what it entails
1: yeah, I mean sometimes like I'll play the game it's like you name the label I'll give you the caveat where the <laughs> lobbyists they're like able to mar- That's to a go.
0: depressing game. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's a horrible game, but it's a true game. So I always start with this like for you got to go species by species, you got to go label by label, but for poultry specifically. So like 99.999% of chicken is raised indoors. You know, 99.999% of beef is raised is at least finished in a feedlot. Uh, Same with sheep. 99.999% of pork is raised indoors. So the biggest difference to me is just, is this an outdoor or an indoor animal? Like that's the basic one. Now, if you want to go through like grass-fed, so like you just mentioned that one, grass-fed, every cow in the world is grass-fed at some point in time. And that's not disputed. It's also not a federally regulated term. So anybody can put grass-fed on any pack of meat that they want by signing an affidavit.
0: So basically, like, I can just take the cow that I have and give him a little nibble of grass, and I can say it was grass-fed.
1: Well, yeah, and the feedlot process only starts for the last three months of their life. So every cow starts out on an open-range pasture environment. If you fed a cow grain for its entire life— it would die. I mean, grains. Are
0: toxic. <laughs> right. Well, that's the whole point, right? It's not yeah. their native diet, and that's why they do get sick, and we have to pump them with antibiotics, etc. Um, so yeah, so so only the last three months is when what they're just fattening them up with the grains.
1: Yeah, they'll stick them in a feedlot. You know, they really couldn't live in the feedlot much longer than that. So if you think about, you've seen the pictures and stuff online of a beef feedlot. They cram these animals in. They're up to their basically up to their knees in fecal matter and uh, they're pumping full all kinds of antibiotics just to keep them alive in that system. A lot of times the grains are so toxic for their ruminant stomach, which is their special like cows and sheep have this special rumen stomach that's only meant to digest grass only, nothing else at all. Um, It'll burn a hole through the cavity of their skin all the way through and you can actually see into these cows' stomachs because of uh, the grain which is totally toxic to their system. So it's a really, really bad environment for cows to be in getting fed grain, you know, which is different than chicken. Chickens can handle grain, um, but the way that they're raised, which is indoor and confinement, that that's not good for them. So you got to really go species by species. One of the worst to me is antibiotic-free. So you see this label thrown around all over the place, you know, antibiotic-free chicken, antibiotic-free beef. All that means is that the vet that works for that farm, whether it's for that feedlot or for that grow house in the case of chicken, as long as they prescribe the antibiotic and the animal's got a three-day withdrawal period, that meat is antibiotic-free. And to me, that's one of the most misleading, misconstrued, like, horrible labels out there uh organic you because can you're look-
0: still getting antibiotics maybe to some degree that's in their meat somewhere but they were just what temporarily on it so then they say oh well they were just on it for a few days now they're off so they're free of it and that's kind of a bit bullshit
1: <laughs> uh, the scientists that work for foster farms and tyson that live in dc will tell you that it's all out of the system within three days but you and i know that that doesn't make any common sense you know
0: no, if that were true, then people who've gone through serious, bat, you know, uh, rounds of antibiotics wouldn't have to <laughs> wouldn't be suffering or have to take probiotics for a while to overcome that. So exactly. All right. So antibiotic free. What about like no added hormones or like no? Is that the same BS?
1: So that's one of the funniest ones for chicken because hormones have been outlawed in all chicken production for the last twenty years. So that's like a very easy one to slap on a thing of chicken. Every chicken. Is hormone free? Free if it's raised in the U.S. So that's like a total BS. That's almost like uh, air chilled. You know, they're like using air chilled as a marketing thing now. Like that has nothing to do with the way the bird lived, what it was fed. It's like very, very small thing that they're throwing on packs as some kind of a marketing claim now. Organic is even another one. I mean, you look at organic. That's kind of like been the gold standard for a long time. I still think it's the best you can do for crop and vegetable production, but for animals. So you look at like a chicken grow house, a 600-foot-long tunnel by 40 feet wide stuffed with 40,000 chickens. I'm sure everybody's seen the pictures online. A lot of times that picture that's online is just the top layer. Like they're walking on top of each other. They're packed in tight, pooping all over each other. The birds have to be de-beaked because they'll literally peck each other to death in that environment. This is all, it all gets very depressing when you look at the real state of American food. But uh, you look at organic. All it takes to certify that chicken is organic Is the USDA or the USDA has to certify that like 95% of those grains haven't been sprayed with the pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that they don't allow? Now, it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of space that they're given, the fact that they get outdoor access, or that they live indoors 100% of the time. It's purely based on the grain that they're being fed. And the sad thing is, there's 156 fertilizers pesticides and herbicides allowed under the organic program so even that's like a bot label uh it's it's pretty sad
0: so what do you do if or has it ever happened where like one of your animals gets sick is it like sorry charlie you're out of (laughs) here is it like a death is that like a death sentence or is it is there something you can do naturally to help that or do they even get really sick
1: i mean people like give us crap for this all the time but our animals don't get sick and when they do I've seen sheep with a sniffly nose or whatever before, and they have real immunity. Like they have built a real immune system that can fight something off like that. And they're not going to just die. They're not going to keel over and die from it. Uh, You know, when you run thousands and thousands of chickens, you do have some die occasionally, but it's no different than if you had thousands and thousands of people, you know, you'd have people die every once in a while too. So there's certainly like a tolerable loss level that for us is extremely low and much lower than the people that are using antibiotics. Um, When the animals are managed naturally in an outdoor environment, getting their species appropriate diet, and they're moved to fresh pasture so that they're not breathing toxic fumes and sleeping on toxic bedding, um, they stay really, really healthy.
0: What about your kill system? Is it like a Temple Grandin design type of situation? It yes. Yeah. yeah. So, what's that? Is is it literally a Temple Grandin design system, or is it something you've uh, you know you guys came up with on your own?
1: Uh, for our beef, it's literally a Temple Grandin design system. We work with like three slaughterhouses that we've hand selected um, for our beef. For our chicken, you know, Temple Grandin doesn't really do chicken work, as far as I know. But um, it's a small family owned place that only does chicken processing, and they do a very small number each day. So they're handling. The animals really with the care and the, the respect that we've done their whole life and we drive animals farther than our most close you know processors just because what's the point of doing all this working really hard to make sure they're being treated humanely and and well and having this great life to stick them in a nasty slaughterhouse and uh I mean, we would never do that. So.
0: Yeah, those those speed lots, you know, when you drive by them, they, they look like a nuclear accident happened. It's just such a disaster. And then you go to a Temple Grandin design system situation, and it's just the most loveliest, you know, pain-free. It's like such a, it's not even depressing to watch at all.
1: Yeah, uh, we like to say, you know, it's one bad day philosophy. Like, and it's not even that, it's like a couple bad hours when they're getting driven to the processing facility and killed as fast and as respectful as possible so um i mean a feedlot is literally hell on earth there's an epidemic of farmers not wanting to return to the family farm selling off their land and trying to get out of it and i'm totally convinced it's because nobody wants to work in that environment i mean literally your daily chores in a in a grow house for chicken is you're going to walk through and you spend two or three hours a day just pulling out dead chickens you know like that's your farming so I have a hard time even calling the conventional modern day system farming. I think it's way closer to manufacturing. Uh, I don't even call it farming. You know, it's just. I agree with you.
0: That that sounds like a more appropriate term, manufacturing. Yeah. What other? So let's talk about grass-fed. That label, the the like, how do we know? You know that, that the meat we're buying is pure as you guys are delivering it other than ordering from you but you know like what are some other label like bs we need to like, think about
1: well grass finished is another one so a lot of times people say well you can't just look for grass fed you have to look for grass finished and i'll say again let's go back to the label game you give me the label i'll give you the loophole and uh, all it takes for grass finished you could stick a cow in a feedlot still up to its knees in poop Again, it's not a federally regulated term, so you can actually put grass finished on whatever you want as long as they had some grass in the feedlot. But you can say 100% grass finished and have 100% integrity with that claim by sticking them in the feedlot and just feeding them hay instead of grain. And it's still a nasty environment. You're still pumping them full of antibiotics just to keep them alive. And they're still miserable cows, but they can technically have that label on them. So grass finished isn't the answer. And what I'll get to like at the end of this talk, is hopefully people understand that labels in general are not the answer. Uh, In the same way that you'd go out and you'd pick your doctor if you were having open heart surgery, by meeting him and talking to him and getting to know him with referrals and different things like that, I think we as citizens, like we need to get to know our food sources and we need to talk to our farmers and we need to understand, with a decent relationship, it's honestly never been easier than before, uh, as it is now, to get to know... Farmer online or whatever but you you really have to go past just looking at labels and get to know your farmer and your food system and uh so
0: well it's yeah. the same thing with like you know uh we who, who were joking around at the company a while back because you know stem cell research and stem cells and then you know that became such a hot topic so then there's like tons of female beauty products that are like you know uh fruit stem cells. And you're like, (laughs) just using that word in any type of way you can. It's like, I can see beyond that label. It's BS. It's not, it's not what you think it is. Just like when you see something that says grass. Um, so then what are we looking for if we want the purest meat?
1: So currently the gold standard is the, is the label pasture raised, right? I mean, pasture raised is like the gold standard right now. Again, we'll come back to the same thing. Federally unregulated term. You can put that on any pack of meat with a simple affidavit. I mean, it's like insane how easy it is to claim that your animals are pasture raised. I've been to many farms that claim pasture raised and there's not a blade of grass anywhere on the ranch. I mean, it's uh what's the legal definition of pasture? There is none, you know, so. I will consistently go back to the fact that if you want to really know where your food's coming from, you need to get to know your farmer. And that may look like going and checking out their website or their Instagram page. Maybe it means giving them a call. Maybe in an ideal world, it means at least going on a farm tour or finding a farm that gives farm tours. Um, But I think it needs to be at that personal level. And that's why I always go back to the fact that local food is important. Because you're able to actually go see that ranch and keep them accountable, I think if you find a ranch that says they're doing all the right things, but they don't have any pictures, or they only have like real up-close pictures of headshots of their animals and they don't offer farm tours and stuff, that's a really, really bad sign. If you have somebody who's really open and transparent, they're posting photos all the time and they're offering farm tours and events and workshops and different things, that's probably a really great sign. So I think it really does come down to you know knowing the farm and knowing where your food's coming from.
0: Yeah, and with more and more companies like yours, you know, in the past few years that have really come out of this whole paleo primal movement, there are so many places that do ship across the U.S. I know California's probably got more than some other states, um, and or or your company as well. And like you said, there's a real relationship there, and you can buy in bulk and you know stock your freezer up and make sure you always have it on hand. And I like that personal. Like when I went and visited a slaughterhouse. I felt a really interesting, like the guy was saying, he was like, look, I know every one of these guys who, you know, cuts the meat. Like, I know them personally. I know that they wouldn't ever walk in here if they had a cold. Um, you know, there's just, it was so clean and it was also, you know, they're processing, I don't know what it was, but it was like 10 animals an hour versus a thousand or, you know what I mean? So it's a, just a different level of care.
1: Yeah. And uh we try to be like I said, in the 21st century, we have all these modern tools. We have social media and we have all these different websites and different ways that we can connect to customers really easy as farmers. Uh, but we also offer every single month we have a farm tour. We open it up. We have an open ranch policy so that anybody can come to our farm at any time. Uh, we can't necessarily give you a full tour, but you can come and do a self-guided tour, walk around, see what's going on. And, uh, when you have something that you're really proud of, and you know we want to be as transparent, our best marketing is transparency you know, and that that's kind of what you want to look for, no matter where you are as somebody who's going to be really really transparent and like maybe they're not going to be the exact standard that you want. you always tell people like, don't just look for oh are you soy free are you gMO free are you this and that like get to know the farmer, get to know their story and why they do things as much as, if not more than like looking for the exact terms that you want to find. Now,
0: it's interesting because I was talking to someone once who said that they became a vegetarian because they did not want to contribute to the feedlot type of scenario and, you know, the the crammed chicken scenario that we're talking about. And, and my point was, well, that's okay. That's a choice. But also then you can get out of that by only eating meat and supporting the companies that aren't doing that. You don't have to quit it altogether to send a message to the feedlots you can send the message by, um, and I guess on that note, I would ask, you know, there's a lot of people, vegan, vegetarian community who you know, would say things like use the standard arguments, like it's bad for the environment, you know, and all of these kind of things. What what are some of the objections that you have gotten, you know, over time, and and what are some of those responses to those kind of objections?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I make no practice out of arguing with vegetarians or vegans if they're doing it for. The purposes of hey, I don't want to kill animals. I don't want to see animals die. You know, no problem. I've that's a personal decision. It's one hundred percent yours to make. So, that I don't have any objection to or argument to at all. I mean, that's a personal decision. But the argument that production of meat is bad for the environment is absolutely bogus. Ninety um, nine percent, ninety nine point you know, point nine 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 percent of current Conventional meat production is absolutely bad for the environment uh it's toxic it's putting off gnarly amounts of carbon it's doing toxic groundwater they're putting antibiotics into the water system and into the meat system yes, it's very bad, but managed properly, like there's nothing better for the land than rotationally grazed beef for you know the soil for building healthy regenerative proper soils. Than uh, rotated lamb, than holistically planned chicken. There's nothing better for the soil uh, than properly managed livestock. And, hey, can you
0: give us a little tutorial on the differences and why the one over here is bad for the environment? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, but but can you just kind of contrast and compare so people understand this argument and it's you know in its fullness?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's take the conventional system first. So let's look at the chicken again. The grow house, forty thousand chickens inside of a. You know, 600 by 40 foot basically looks like a greenhouse. Whether it's free range or cage free or organic, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. You know, it's grow house production. Um, Think about 40,000 chickens. If you've ever seen chickens or had chickens in your backyard, you know how much they poop. Think about 40,000 times that amount. It's an absolute waste epidemic. So they need to pull that waste out and they need to put it somewhere. So usually they end up stacking it somewhere on the farm. It leaches into the ground. It goes into the groundwater. It's absolutely infested with antibiotic residue and all the different stuff that they're putting vaccines and all the different things they're putting into the into the meat is what ends up going into the manure. That leaches into the groundwater. It's direct linked scientific study proven uh, direct correlation of people that are already getting antibiotic resistance from animal production that's going into human. Uh, the human bloodstream and stuff. And then they end up spraying that up in the air to irrigate the crops. And it's toxic groundwater that's going to you know, get all over houses and new crops. And I mean, it's a disaster. It's an ecological disaster, growing animals in a grow house or a feedlot or anything else. Compare that with a properly managed holistic, we call it holistically managed livestock system. So in nature, you got to think about, like, go back to a place with a large, you know, untampered wildlife population like the African Serengeti, which is studied all the time for our purposes. The way that it works is you have these big animals that only defense against predators is to herd up into a large pack, right? So you heard of, like, packs of, you know, herds of bison and the Great Plains and all this different stuff. So they herd up, they eat the grass that's underneath their feet, they poop all over the ground, and once that ground is soiled, they have to move on to the next spot. If you've ever gardened before or farmed or anything, you understand that that manure, when applied at the right rate, is actually the best fertilizer that's ever been known to mankind. It's better than anything Monsanto can come up with, you know? And so (laughs) the grass basically absorbs that manure. It turns it into healthier, more regenerated land for the next year. And then the, the animals move on to the next spot. And that process continues like for thousands and thousands of years. So when you look at an area like the Great Plains in America... Which has grown some of the greatest crops of corn and soy, unfortunately, over the last hundred years that the world's ever seen. That's directly because we had a herd of a hundred million bison in America. As far as we know, you know, as far back as we know, a massive herd of bison that was being controlled by predation and being manually rotated, uh, depositing manure and moving on to the next spot and really like fertilizing the land for a very long time. That's why we have the Great Plains. So meat production. When we levered- so essentially, sorry to
0: interrupt you, but essentially the natural pastured life of these bison from the past is what gave the land and earth its most fertile for ground. Unfortunately, we used it for soy and corn, but, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, w- when we use na- nature's template, we can really, really have great impacts, positive impacts on the ecosystem by producing meat, you know? And uh, to go even further on that point, you have a vegetarian or vegan that says, oh, I want to opt out for ecological reasons because meat's so bad for the environment. Well, if you want to make that argument, let's look at conventional corn and soy production. Let's look at conventional vegetable production. Let's look at anything you're eating conventionally. They're absolutely raping the soil, pumping it full of all kinds of chemical and synthetic fertilizers, and they're making that I mean, that's just as bad. And killing lots of
0: large animals to protect those soy fields. A lot of large animals get shot to protect them because they love munching on it. So you kind of can't escape even on that argument if you're a vegan or vegetarian eating soy. There's a part of that that's involved in still killing animals.
1: Well, and are the large animals that much more important than the small animals? Agreed. One one shot of Roundup can kill over a million animals. Like insects, bugs, critters, micro insects. I mean, who's to say that the cow is more important than the caterpillar? You know, like agreed. So, uh, a healthy, managed, natural ecosystem of a you know properly managed livestock ranch. I'll go out on my farm right now. I can look out the window and I can see butterflies and snakes and bees and all different kinds of ecosystem wildlife habitating on my farm. Uh, and I, I would find that hard to argue that I'm causing you know, anywhere near the environmental destruction that uh, a conventional soy field is producing.
0: On the subject of snakes, since we are in Southern California and there are tons of rattlers, do you have rattlesnakes on your property? And if so, do they ever bite the animals?
1: They do. Yeah. Uh, what
0: happens? It, are they immune to it? Or
1: <laughs> They actually are. Yeah. So we have livestock guardian dogs that'll get bit every once in a while. Um, dogs don't get affected too bad by snakes. And, you know, they're healthy dogs that live outside and they get fresh air and sunshine. And, they don't get any kind of intervention. They just uh, they avoid the rattlesnake next time and they're sick for a couple of days and they bounce back.
0: What kind of dogs do you have?
1: Oh man, our dogs are like the coolest, maybe the coolest part of the farm. So we have seven uh, Anatolian Shepherd Great Pyrenees oh, mix. These okay. huge. they are
0: my favorite breed. Those dogs are amazing.
1: Oh, they're so cool. They're so cool. When you run animals outside, uh, we learned the hard way. We lost 1,200 chickens in our first year to coyotes. And that was like, 1,200 out of 1,500 total, you know, so we lost almost the whole flock to coyotes. And as a former like sniper trained Marine officer, it was my first reaction to go, all right, let's go, go shoot the coyotes.
0: That would totally be my first reaction
1: too. That's the wrong reaction though. It is, but 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 it's an instinct, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just a bad instinct. So our whole thing is like, you know, coyotes were here way before us. We're doing this whole thing to be an ecological benefactor, not a detriment, and, uh, we learned about these dogs that have been guarding livestock for like thousands of years. So great Pyrenees is a French breed that's been in the Pyrenees mountains for thousands of years with goats and sheep and same with the Anatolian is a Turkish breed. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I just couldn't stomach the idea of sitting out there with a, with a rifle shooting these coyotes. And honestly, for other reasons that, that, uh, it doesn't work anyways. So, uh, we got the dogs and I haven't lost an animal to a predator in two and a half years. I mean it's amazing.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, the Anatolian Shepherds are interesting. I, I know someone here who has a very large property and they had their workers had to constantly trap animals all the time on the property until they got an Anatolian Shepherd and like they have not seen a damn thing. <laughs> they just got rid of all the traps. Just the presence of that animal and the way that it guards and roams and it's an outdoor dog. It's they're very cool.
1: Yeah, they've never been inside of our house or anything. You know, they live outside twenty four seven with the livestock they're uh they're cool really really cool looking beautiful soft fluffy dogs and we do farm tours with kids you know a thousand plus people a year, and they're very friendly and all that stuff but if you come up to the side of our fence late at night or you bring a dog up to the fence, I mean they go berserk so it's it's really cool to watch
0: how many acres do you guys have?
1: We're on forty acres here in Marietta
0: so then What's the rate of which, like, what kind of space are they in and for how long until then they're moved to the next section so that they're not affecting this other that needs to be fertilized and, and help the earth, et cetera?
1: Every animal is going to be different. So uh, right now we're moving our cows and sheep about once every one to two days. Uh, and we just build a, a size pen using electric fencing. So it's very, very portable. We'll lock them in that single area and uh, they'll basically... so you know, for the amount of cows and sheep that we have right now, which is like 20 to 30, it's a fairly small herd right now because we just did a big slaughter. But, um, you know, it's maybe a thousand square feet or something. It's plenty of room for them to get out and walk around. But they're like eating a certain amount of grass and fertilizing a certain amount of soil. And then we'll move them, you know, using that electric fencing, and electric charger. So uh, it's all based on eyesight. And that's kind of where like the skill comes in of understanding how to manage the land, not overgraze it, but also you don't want to undergraze it and under fertilize. So it's a fine balance.
0: What um, I'm wondering about organ meats. Do you sell every part of the animal? Do you keep the best for yourself? Are you keeping the organ meats yourself? Or do you sell every part of each animal that you raise?
1: We sell every part. Me and my family do a lot of organ meats. You know, when you're talking about pasture-raised livestock on a species-appropriate diet, maybe the most valuable part of that animal is the organ meats for the health benefits. So we sell the heck out of like, yeah, chicken pasture raised, uh, chicken livers and chicken hearts and uh, those that stuff maybe sells faster than you know boneless skinless breasts, but it's a hot ticket item and people definitely go after that stuff pretty quick.
0: And does your whole family eat all the parts of the animals? Or are you? Oh yeah, yeah. So everyone, yeah. no one's grossed out by anything at this point.
1: <laughs> at this point, you need to get over it because That's right. Even if you are grossed out by it, like we do, beef liver and. Some people don't like the taste. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of the taste of beef liver either, but I understand the health necessity of it. So we'll grind up like one part per 10, you know, like a 10th uh, a of a pound of liver, and we'll grind that up with uh, a pound of ground beef. And that way, you don't really get the flavor at all, but you get the benefit of it. And
0: That's a great tip, actually, that you just mentioned that for people that want to get more of that in their life is doing a little mix.
1: Yeah, it works super good, and uh, you don't really taste it, and you get all the benefit of it. So,
0: and probably can sneak it into a kid's mouth, and they wouldn't know that it's not just a regular burger.
1: Ah, uh, for sure not. Yeah, another things like, you know, a, a quarter pound of chicken liver in a really good fruit smoothie. And you don't taste it, you know, like you just drop it in there and you get all the benefit. And you really don't taste it at all. So we do that too.
0: Ooh, okay. It, it would seem that it would be strong enough where you might taste it, but I, I, I hear you if you've covered it up with some 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 good fruits and stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah, something real citric or whatever, where it's like a strong flavor and you really don't get it at all. But uh, the key is on organ meats. Is don't take advice on organ meats and go out to you know food for less and buy like really cheap ones. Get them. If you're going to get anything from a pasture-raised, healthy, antibiotic-free animal, get the organ meats that way uh, because that's essentially the filter, you know, the liver particularly.
0: Right. You don't want to be eating a, a, the liver of like a, a 50-year alcoholic, so you wouldn't want to eat the liver of like an antibiotic-infused in, in, animal and, and whatnot. Exactly. Um, what else can we look out for or what are some other maybe issues that you guys are dealing with as farmers these days in this world? Are there any, are there some things that are a priority for you guys or, or, you know, what's out there right now for you?
1: I mean, one thing that I talk about a lot of times too is budget. So what it comes down to for most people, they say, yeah, this sounds great, but like I can't afford the prices on that stuff. And that's just out of reach for a lot of people. And so, What I will say is this, is if you can find a farmer to buy from directly or at least semi directly, you know, from like one degree of separation, first of all, you're going to get way higher quality for the same price. So if you look at a product that's being sold, let's say like Whole Foods, and I love Whole Foods, they do a pretty good job with stuff, not really meat, but they do a pretty good job with other stuff. You know, it's going from the farmer to the processor, to the packager, to the distributor, to the secondary distributor to the grocer to you. So if you think about how many times that's touched a different set of hands and each set of hands needs to make their 15 to 20% margin, think about the quality that you're getting for the same price as going and buying directly from a farmer who, sure, they're not at the same scale that some of the growers are, um, but you're going to get as good of a product, if not probably better for the same price or maybe a little bit more. The other thing is you have to learn how to buy in bulk if you want to learn uh, to, to work with small farmers. Uh, one of the best programs that we have is in shares. So like a quarter share, half share, whole share of a beef or of a lamb or of a pig. Uh, we do like a buy 10, get one free um, on chicken, on whole birds specifically. So learn how to work with whole birds. Uh, that's so far and away the best way to buy uh, any meat product from a small farmer yeah, we could do use chicken as an example. So like a whole chicken from us is $25, $30, which is really expensive. And I'll self-admit that one in a heartbeat. But if you were to buy each of those parts cut up, so you bought the bon- boneless breasts, the thighs, the wings, the drumsticks, it's like 50 bucks for that same bird. Uh So if you can learn how to work with a whole bird, that's already going to put you light years ahead. If you can learn to buy these shares, so like quarter, half, whole share, that, that kind of way, you literally save thousands of dollars and you can get high quality meat um, for the same or less price that you'd be getting garbage from, from the grocery store.
0: Right. And you know, that argument's been made a couple of times like, yeah, paleo primal, you know, being natural, that sounds great, but it's too expensive. Well, The other part of this is like when you become a fat burner and you get off this, you know, sugar burning train, you become calorically efficient and you end up actually needing less food in general to fuel oneself. And so it goes from like maybe being able to put away a 32 ounce steak on your own one night and just stuff it out to really only be able to have like half of eight ounce steak and being good with that. And so as time goes by, I think myself and other people have noticed that we're consuming less actual meat overall and less food overall. And so it, it actually ends up working out. I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it's sort of cheaper in the long run. And of course, then you're, you, you can eliminate some medical bills
1: and some, yeah, yeah, and some
0: other things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I love the way that you put that. That's awesome. Uh, I've never heard it put so eloquently. I talk about it all the time. Americans eat too much meat in general. You know, like it—it's still a salad if it doesn't have chicken on it. So I sell meat for a living and I raise meat. But one of my biggest pieces of advice is like, lay off the meat. You know, and when you do eat it, eat high quality stuff. But your plate should be green. You know, like I, I don't. I I don't have any problem with telling people they should be eating less meat. And when they do eat it, try to get high quality stuff.
0: Right. And on that note, too, you know, when you overeat meat, it turns into glucose anyway, which can keep you in a bad, bad sphere. And it's one of those things that sort of if you're into it, it's easy to overeat if you're already kind of. A sugar-burning, you know, big, yeah. big eater. But yeah, after time, it's just amazing. I mean, you know, Mark Sisson has said it, even my brother who lives in Temecula has said it, who went primal, lost 40 pounds, feels great. And we talk about it all the time where we're like, wow, it's so crazy how the amount and the volume of food that we used to eat then versus now and how calorically efficient you get. And it literally actually becomes cheaper than your standard sugar burning, standard American diet person.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I've never heard the term caloric efficiency I like that a lot. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, it's
0: a cool thing that happens. I'm, I don't know. Maybe you've noticed it yourself oh, over for sure. time. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a weird thing because one of the things that's weird about it is for a while before you kind of catch it, you kind of then eat the same volume of food and then you're like, I'm stuffed and feel inflamed, And then you kind of like, is it really possible that I need to be eating less than I'm eating? It's kind of yep. a weird mind screw, you know? Yep. Um, and then over time, it's... Um, like for me now, I mean, I used to, uh, I used to go to town, I could eat a huge, just big fat one plus pound steak in, in no, no, no time. And I can still do that occasionally, but throughout the course of a day, I wouldn't be able to eat more than that. That would be like a really big day for me. And I would have never even imagined eating like half a eight ounce steak at some point, having that even satisfy me where now, yep. now it would. And then the other half is for another time. So
1: Yep. Yeah, I always say, like, I challenge you to get uh, uncomfortably full on broccoli and cauliflower, you know. Right,
0: right. Yeah, that would be, ugh, that would be (laughs) brutal. That would be a lot of of it. Um, What are some other things we can think about before we go and and a message you might want to relay to people? You've been in this industry a while now and you're, you know, you're right at the forefront of everything that's happening. And also, thank you for contributing to that, you know, for starting this company. We need more people like you.
1: Oh, well, uh another message that we talk about all the time is like the best way that you can influence this is through your fork and your dollar. You know, it's a, I'm not the only one doing this. There's thousands of small, you know, responsible farms throughout the country and throughout the world now, especially new ones popping up all over the place to seek those ones out. And when you do find them support the heck out of them, you know, this, none of this is possible without the consumer speaking with their dollars. So, we hear people all the time, oh, yeah, the government needs to change the legislation. They need to do this and that. And it's like my favorite farmer, Joel Salatin, always says we cannot wait for salvation by legislation. Like we, you need to go out and create the demand and to be the demand for this movement to happen if you want it to take root. We can go in detail about how corn shouldn't be subsidized and you know, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I agree with all that. But what do you specifically have control over? Go find a farm. Find a really great one, get to know them, and help promote them and and uh, and support them with your dollars. I mean, that's the best thing that you can do.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And and to that point, I want to highlight where I've seen that, which is you know now Cheerios has a gluten-free cereal, and you know they and and, and are getting chemicals out of their cereals or whatever it is. They're they're making an effort that was not made for many years, and yep. that can only be because of the demand of clean products that people are putting out there. And so the big General Mills and you know some of those companies. Are going all right? Well, if we want to play in this game now, we might need to clean up our act. So again, like you said, you know, dollars, dollars change lives and change legislation or just change the way we we do things. And so I agree yep. with you.
1: Um, big companies are not inherently evil most of the time. They don't want to put GMOs and toxic chemicals in your body, but when that's what the market calls for, is just big, fat, cheap, fast food. Uh, that's what you get, you know. So if you want to see something else, then vote with your dollars, and I think that's, you know, that's great. If you want to take it to the next level and start your own farm, well, then give me a call or an email, and I'll help you get. I'll help you get set up.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. So you you're in Southern California, and so people can come visit you live and take a tour. You can go to primalpastures.com and find out more about that. How can we find you on social media? Are you on social media?
1: Yeah, we're on Facebook at Primal Pastures, Instagram or Primal Pastures. Um, I don't tweet too much, so don't, don't bother us on there, but, uh, yeah. And it's, again, I always get back to this. It's not about us. If you happen to be in California, Arizona, Nevada, awesome. We would love to feed you and your family, but if you're not, or even if you are, there's thousands of farms. So one of my favorite websites is eatwild.com. That's an awesome resource. It's self-regulated. So I'm not vouching for anybody on there, but for the most part, it's a listing of pasture-based livestock farms throughout the country, and it's got a link and it's got their website. And you can give them a, a call and talk to them and ask them questions. Um, but get to know your farmers, man. get out there. It's not as miserable as you might think. You know you get out there and you get to hold the baby chicks and talk to pretty funny people most of the time, and it actually can be a pretty fun time. And then when you know them and you've got them, that's your source, you know, and you can really support them and and grow with them. So I would just say, you know, yes, if you're in Southern California, or California, Arizona, Nevada, we got your back. Uh, If not, you have many, many resources all over the place. So go and find your farmers.
0: And we will also put that Eat Wild uh, link in the the show notes. So thank you so much for that. That is a great resource. I've been to that website. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I think it's interesting because it's almost like we're, we're going back in time, right, where it's kind yes. of old timey, where we're starting to get like, you know, interested in like wanting to know who the farmers are and where our yes. meat's coming from. And I love that part of it. Yep. I don't want to go back to old timey, like women's rights old time.
1: Right? So, we'll <laughs> and, take the good stuff from yeah. the old school and we'll, we'll, yeah, we always say like uh, one of my favorite quotes is like, uh, you can call us organic rotational holistic biodynamic you know all these different things a hundred years ago this was like chicken and eggs and beef and uh right it was I wish just called farmer
0: can... it wasn't anything yeah. else yeah
1: <laughs> we're doing the normal thing you know like we're just the normal guys all the conventional stuff is the weird stuff so uh, hopefully we can get back to it
0: i agree it's a great paradigm shift and uh it's definitely happening thank you so much for joining us once again paul grieve from primal pastures thanks so much
2: thank you Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of Primal Health Coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a Primal Health Coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. We also have payment plans available, so you can start immediately for just a dollar down. The world needs Primal Health Coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.